Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to the seventh episode of Que Pasa, HSIs. As I laid out the first season of the podcast, I tried to find balance in the speakers and topics that we discuss, and especially tried to balance researchers with practitioners, yet found that many of my guests are both researchers and practitioners in HSIs, which makes for a very rich show. I hope you found it to be helpful to learn alongside so many different people working with them for HSIs. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Jarrett Lujan, who serves as the inaugural director for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Dr. Lujan talks about his experiences as both an undergraduate and graduate student attending different HSIs or emerging HSIs in Texas, and talks about his plan for his current role as a newly appointed inaugural director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at one of Texas's longtime HSIs. In this episode, he provides us with an exclusive look at his dissertation findings, which used a counter-story approach to critically evaluate the Hispanic servant identity of an emerging HSI through the eyes of Latine students. Dr. Lujan received a Bachelor of Science in Biology with a minor in Chemistry and earned a Master of Education in Student Development and Leadership in Higher Education with an Academic Advising Certificate from Angelo State. He was very active at Angelo State, serving as student body president and running track and field. Notably, he was appointed by Governor Abbott, boo, as the first Hispanic student region of Texas Tech University system. Yay. He served in multiple roles on campus, including coordinator for student activities and admissions counselor before pursuing his PhD in higher education research at Texas Tech University. Lujan was born in El Paso and raised in Marfa and continues to serve Tejanos in his new role. Prior to the show, I had never met Dr. Lujan, but he came highly recommended as a guest, and now I know why. He is truly a dynamic person and was so much fun to talk to and learn with. I hope you will enjoy this episode of Get Basa HSIs. All righty, we are going to go ahead and jump into today's episode of Get Pasa HSIs. Dr. Lujan, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Get Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with Hispanic serving institutions, let's talk about you. So this is a podcast for higher education practitioners, researchers, scholars, students. Um, but I always like to start us just with your own journey so that we can know, you know, a little bit about you um, and how you got into higher ed and through higher ed. So tell us about your higher ed journey, starting with, with college, um, Angelo State University, and, and then finally getting a terminal degree at Texas Tech. Tell us about the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you again for inviting me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to share. Um, so my journey is a little bit weird. Um, I'm from a very small town uh, called Marfa, Texas, out in West Texas. Um, a lot of people know it for the Prada store. Um, first generation college student, chose Angelo State ultimately because they allowed me to run track and field. Um, really wanted to continue my track career went there as a biology major, um, decided to pursue medicine. That was the initial plan. 
And just like every other higher ed professional, <laughs> you know, we went into higher ed uh, kind of unconventionally. Didn't know it was a career path, honestly, until I got involved in um, student government, really loved um, being an SGA president. Um, and that's ultimately what how I caught the higher ed bug. And I never looked back ever since. And I looked into the master's programs at Angelo State, did an online master's program there while being an admissions counselor, traveling all over the state, trying to recruit people. Um, and then I became a Greek life coordinator and also over the homecoming programs at ASU. So doing a lot of stuff with um, the Greek community, the fraternity and sorority life. And then I just decided to completely drop all of that, um, you know, quit my job and go pursue my terminal degree at Texas Tech University. And ultimately what that how that started was because I became student regent. I was the first Hispanic student regent at the Texas Tech University system. That opened up a lot of different opportunities networking wise for me in my career. I met a lot of great people at Texas Tech and they decided to influence me to, to come on to their campus and um, pursue my PhD there. And so uh, in 2019, I actually went to Texas Tech, uh, got a job as a research assistant, was really interested in HSI research and started diving into that. And that's ultimately what I um, did my dissertation in. Uh, now that I've um, completed that, I'm over here at Texas A&M University Kingsville as their inaugural director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I, I, I like to think about people's lives and how the things that they do sort of are reflective in their experiences. And you, you said you ran track, right? And mm -hmm. I feel like your degrees almost were like you were just nonstop running and like <laughs> picking up degrees along the way. Um, yeah. and, and now ultimately end up in this really powerful position, which is, which is great. Um, but reading your bio, right. And really learning about like that you got involved in student government and, and, mm -hmm. and being appointed to the, you know, governor's board, um, isn't, you know, what an important, um, uh, piece or this, not the governor's board. What is it? The board of regents. Board of regents. That one. Mm. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I can't remember what it's called. The board okay. of regents. Um, um, <laughs> so thank you for sharing that, you know, sort of perspective on like, um, how you got there, but let's rewind you a little bit, a, a sure. little bit. I want to, I want to go back. Cause I'd like to talk a little bit about how did you even know how to go to higher ed? How did you even know how to, how to, um, apply I mean I know also you you spend time um, helping students to learn you've been an admissions counselor so how did you know right as a first generation college student what what was your college going process like yeah I mean ultimately it comes down to I didn't I I you know going into college I had a mother who went who went to college initially but um, decided to not pursue that and pursue her family um, so you know, a lot of the initial knowledge of getting into college and undergrad was known. But after that, I was completely by myself. Um, she was always there to support. Um, but other than that, I didn't. I had no intention of going to graduate school. I had no idea what that entailed. I just knew that I was pursuing, you know, medicine. And I didn't even know what that meant. Even at that time, I knew you had to go to medical school, didn't know what that commitment was like until later on. Um, and when it came down to it, you know, I had um, a really great mentor, Dr. Javier Flores. He was the uh, vice president for student affairs and enrollment management at Angelo State. Um, him and I got really close. I actually worked in his office a couple of times on special projects. And, you know, he really kind of sat me down one day and said, you know, have you ever thought about this career path? And I said, you know, I really never thought it was a career path. I didn't know that education was for me or what higher ed even was. 
Um, all I thought, all I thought it was, and this is just something that kills me today as people ask me what higher ed is, is like, you're just, you want to be a professor, right? That's what you want to do. That's what you're doing. And I'm like, not necessarily, but we are educators in, in every single way. So um, that's how I got introduced to the topic was my, my mentor. Um, he kind of said, you know, I kind of see this in you. And what's funny is my advisor um, in biology was actually really good friends with him. And they had a conversation together behind um, closed doors and they actually kind of collaborated. So when I met with my biology advisor, my senior year, he was like, look, I know you love biology, but I really think that you'd be great. And hearing that from my biology advisor kind of gave me the permission to say, okay, this is something that I can do and that people believe in me um, to do. And so I'm going to look into it. And I ultimately, that's what I did. Awesome. Shout out to the good mentors and advisors in our life. Um, Because we need those, right? We need people to tell us and to help us. And particularly when we're young uh, college students trying to figure out life and we're like, I don't know, what am I good at? And other people see it, right? And it was clear that other people were seeing, um, you know, seeing it in you like, oh, you're going to be good, right? We've got a lot of people had vision for you before (laughs) you even had vision for yourself. Absolutely. (laughs) in many ways. So, okay, cool. So let's talk a little bit about your serving this journey um, or another way, otherwise stated, how did HSIs come into your consciousness? Sure. So initially when I was in graduate school, so in my master's program, I started kind of learning a little bit about what higher ed was. Um, I knew that I was at an HSI um, whenever I was at Angelo State. Um, When I actually enrolled there, they had just gotten the designation as an HSI. Um, But I really didn't know what that meant. I just knew that the title was there and that there was a certain amount of Hispanics at this institution. That's all I knew. Um, Getting involved in student government gave me a little bit more of an insight into what that meant for funding wise. Um, And really, whenever I went to become student regent at the at the system level for the, the Texas Tech system, that's where I learned a lot about grants and, and funding across the board and why these um, institutions were pursuing the designation to help almost supplement a lot of that funding that wasn't coming in from the state. Um, and so when that happened, I was like, you know, I really want it. I really took interest in this. So while I was student regent, um, I took interest in understanding um, where that money was going. What was that money being used for? And ultimately what it came down to was I was discovering it wasn't necessarily targeting Hispanic students. Um, That was just me with a higher ed lens with no research background at all, just kind of realizing that although this was somewhat, you know, geared towards that, it was, it wasn't necessarily impacting or students really didn't know where that money was going or what it was for. Um, So when it came to pursuing my, my degree at Texas Tech, my terminal degree, I knew that's what I wanted to study. I really wanted to further understand what this designation meant, um, but really kind of understand and and complicate what it meant to be um, a Hispanic serving institution, um, especially at a predominantly white Hispanic serving institution. Right. You know, um, we we tend to forget that these institutions don't just to get to get rid of their PWI status just because they become an HSI. Um, and so I really wanted to kind of understand what, what that was. And, and that's ultimately what led me into truly trying to answer that question and led me to like your scholarship and other scholars, um, that is trying to answer the question. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about your dissertation then. So in your dissertation, you used a photo voice methodology and counter narratives to understand how undergraduate Hispanic Latina students perceive the campus environment at a predominantly white HSI, which maybe talk a little bit about that, right? What, sure. what does that mean to be predominantly white HSI? Um, so tell us a little bit more about that and then also about what you found, right? Like yeah. the, the practitioners who are listening and the scholars who are listening, like, what did you find? Yeah, no, I think, you know, starting off with photo voice, you know, I think when I when I was looking for a a method or a way to gather data, I wanted it to be something that kind of wasn't used a lot yet in higher ed research. Um, And one of my um, professors, Dr. Brian Hodgkins, uh, he had utilized photo voice in one of his studies, um, looking at a residence hall, uh, specifically black students in residence halls. And I was really interested in, in applying that to HSI research. And so when it came to my dissertation, I was like, you know, I think visual examples are needed. You know, what are some visual examples of servingness and how can we communicate that to both practitioners and to, you know, um, policymakers as well? Um, And so what I decided to do was use photo voice. And for those that are unfamiliar, it basically allows students or participants to take photos of their environment. Um, to be able to visually see what was going on. And what I asked the students to do was take a picture anywhere around campus um, that you feel like your Hispanic Latina identity, um, you are comfortable or uncomfortable in um, and kind of just let that sit. However, however, the students took that. Um, And so some students decided to take two photos of the places that they were really kind of uncomfortable being their true selves um, and some students chose two comfortable spaces. Um, there was overlap um, in, in some of the photos that they took. And it was really interesting um, to kind of see where they were, they were kind of going. Um, and ultimately what this, what this does, this photo voice does, is it allows the students to see the photos that were taken amongst the focus group, which was about six students, um, evenly split with gender. Um, so it was pretty interesting. And they were able to discuss and see what their what their photos were and and why they decided to take those photos. And what was interesting was that a lot of the students agreed um, in most cases that, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't even think about to to take a picture of that space. Yes, I agree. When I go into that space, I don't feel comfortable or I feel comfortable here or I don't hear. Um, So that was that was kind of some anecdotal stuff that was interesting in that focus group. And that ultimately what photo voice wants to do is to inform policymakers. It kind of starts that research starts in um, medical research um, to kind of like inform policymakers on the medical side and the healthcare field. But this is, um, in my view, going to influence policymakers at like the national level and even at institutional level to kind of take a more deeper, more visual look into what students are visually seeing in physical spaces on campus. Because when we think of servingness, we may not think about what this picture on the wall is doing to the Hispanic Latina identity on campuses. Um, and so that's, that's kind of initially, you know, where I started with it, the initial findings, um, you know, I think a lot of them are, are, are pretty, um, I guess, knowledgeable that we, we kind of already are seeing some of these themes in other scholarship, HSI scholarship, um, but ultimately that counter narratives are needed, you know, that allowing the space for students um, to speak their mind and speak truth to power um, is absolutely needed in in evaluating and contemplating um, what servingness means um, on HSI campuses. 
Um, and noting that, you know, every campus is going to be different. Every HSI campus designated is going to be different. So serving this is going to look somewhat nuanced on every single campus. And so on this campus, it was a predominantly white HSI um, that was an emerging HSI. Um, and so when I say predominantly white, it means that, you know, they are the most of the student population is white. Um, even though they are approaching that designation requirement of at least 25% Hispanic Latina students, um, it doesn't negate the fact that they are historically a white institution um, and predominantly white currently. Um, and so that doesn't erase the systematic pressures and, and um, systems that are affecting the Hispanic students. Um, so that's why I ultimately chose that. And, and so allowing the students to of the space to be able to say what they want on campus. Um, part of that was more Hispanic art. Uh, in the study, you know, you you um, one of the findings was uh, a picture of Frida Kahlo, uh, and it was in the student center, but it was tucked away in a corner where not everybody can see it. But that was the only Hispanic art that was displayed on campus. And so the students were like, you know, I just wish that we had more representations of our culture, um, especially Hispanic art. Um, and this was another counter narrative type answer that was like, look, we can speak truth to power by allowing our artwork to speak for us in spaces that we weren't allowed in prior to certain movements. Right. Um, ultimately, that that kind of translated it into um, another finding, which was people transforming spaces. Um, we don't recognize the power that we all have when we walk into a space. Um in the study, you know, the example was um, Mr. Medina. Mr. Medina was something, a, a, a key figure, and this is a pseudonym, uh, that was, uh, a, a, all the students agreed that when he walked into the room, they ultimately felt more comfortable immediately in their Hispanic identity because they, were, they knew that he was a resource. They knew that they could come into his office, which was one of the, also the pictures that they submitted was his office and talk about anything, talk about the news of the day, talk about things in Spanish that they're more comfortable um, speaking their own language. Um, and that that was powerful um, to, to recognize that even um, a white professor um, that acknowledged one of the students in, in, in the study, um, that she was a leader on campus and that she was doing a dual degree in Spanish and, and athletic training. This white professor gave her validation and initially that classroom space was negative for her, it turned it into a positive experience. So now that space, she actually loves that space. Um, so that, you know, that along with some of the, the racialized experiences um, that these students experienced was also something um, powerful. Um, you know, one of the biggest quotes that I get out of this study was, I thought the library was for everyone. Um, and that was from one of the students. And um, she outright said, you know, I go to the library, but I don't feel like I belong in the library. Um, and all the students agreed. Every single one of the participants said, yes, you know, I just go in and go back out, you know, whenever I'm in the library. And if I do go in the library, I isolate in the stacks um, away from everybody. And I don't congregate with my friends because I'm afraid that if I speak Spanish, I'm going to be judged. I'm afraid that my loud voice as a Latina, a Latino is going to be judged, you know, in that space. Um, so I just avoid it or I just wait until the last minute to go. Um, and that ultimately you think about all the resources and, and um, you know, different articles that are available, technology that is available to these students in these, in these libraries 
but these students are avoiding them completely. Um, and what does that say to persistence rates, to sense of belonging, right? And so it has a lot of these implications that, you know, we don't realize that not every space is neutral. Their spaces are just not inherently neutral to all students. Um, so that was kind of the findings that one of the more prominent findings that I really like to highlight is that, you know, there, there are spaces in which students feel like they can't sit down and rest in the middle of the day just because of their skin color, just because of the way they have an accent or they're afraid of speaking Spanish over the phone while talking to mom and dad. Um, these spaces are not inherently neutral. Um, so those three are kind of like the main findings of, of my study. Awesome. Oh my gosh. I have so many questions, but no, I love it. I loved all of it. Um, I do want to first say that um, I do always appreciate the conversation on art and what the actual physical space feels like. Um, I found the same thing in my dissertation, you know, like several years before um, same exact thing. People talked about art on the walls as mm -hmm. the thing that represented servingness to them. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, the art on the wall, like say more, right? What do <laughs> yeah. you mean? And like the pictures, obviously they took the pictures for you, but um, yeah, it was the, the art that was like the art that had uh, Latinx artists or Chicanx mm -hmm. artists, right? That, that that's where people felt, um, you know, the most at home or the most where it felt like an HSI. Mm -hmm. um, but as you say, the, the opposite can be the, the case. Whereas if the art is representing like, a frontier native being shot or something, yeah. right? Like something violent. Absolutely. People feel that too, right? There's articles yeah. about that, about, uh, about native American, indigenous, uh, Latinx is feeling the exact opposite, right? That the yeah. art, the art is actually violent, yeah. right? That it can be absolutely violent. So art is powerful. It can be really, really powerful as can buildings, right? Buildings can be um, even just uh, representations of, of colonial pasts, right? That students yeah. might be like, I don't know about this, but the library, that's fascinating. That was the one yeah. place that people were like, no. And like, I mean, it's like almost like the library is necessary at a college or university. Yes. Right? Like we all go into the library at least once, at least back in the days. Yeah. I don't know. Now most of the stuff you can get <laughs> electronically. Yeah. I know I do. I'm like, if it's not an ebook, I can't, I'm not reading it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's not the case always. Sometimes you got to have those stacks, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so that's such an important piece because libraries aren't necessarily talking about their role in servingness. Right yet they are absolutely part of it. Yeah, clearly. exactly. And that's just like exactly what you just said. The role of servingness is not inherently designated to a DEI division, right? A diversity, equity, inclusion division. It needs to be in every day, every classroom, every single space, um, you know, mission. And, and that's mm -hmm. what I think this study kind of highlights is not only is your physical office space sometimes being evaluated as a, as a mode of servingness, mm. but also the space that you bring in when you enter a space, the, the energy, the, the ability for students to feel more comfortable, that transforms spaces. So an inherently negative space may be completely changed just by you being in it, being present in these students' lives. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the people... That's a big, that's a big thing too, with like serving this is like, eh, sometimes it's just the person. Yeah. It's not the actual institution. It's like a person represents serving or, or I recently was talking to a colleague who 
called themselves a server, right? Or how do we be better mm. servers, right? Like that the people are the servers, not the yeah. institution, right? The institution isn't serving, but the people are and how powerful that is, right? That the, that the people matter. We know exactly. that. Um, so were there any other spaces that were, uh, we should think about on college campuses that were not spaces of servingness um, that came out of your study? Because I could think of a lot, but any yeah. other ones that came out, <laughs> empirical evidence? Sure. You know, uh, in this particular study, there was uh, all this, a lot of the students all took pictures of the student center, um, mm. different spaces within the student center, um, mainly this main congregating area. And I kind of already alluded to this earlier, but it was a situation in which there was this couched area where these students would come by to see Mr. Medina because his office was right there off of mm-hmm. those couched area. And all the students said, every time I walk into there, there is nothing but just white students laying down and sleeping there or mm-hmm. utilizing the space um, every single time. And I can't go there and it's a comfortable space to rest in between classes and, and that conversation carried into another student's um, picture, which was a general area just off the couched area um, where the student said the exact same thing. Like, I come to hang out in between classes and I can't do that because all this space is just taken up and I, I, don't, I just don't. So they just avoid the space completely. And think about, again, all the resources available in student centers why they would be able to, you know, just to hang out in that space and then think, oh, you know what? I need to go pay my bill, you know? So I'm going to go pay my bill or uh, I'm going to go grab something to eat really quick in between classes, but they can't because they don't have a place to sit. And so they may just avoid it completely. And then that affects sense of belonging overall on Mm -hmm. campus. You know, if I'm only able to go to this one little corner of campus, whereas that's where I feel most comfortable and that may be somebody's office. They may not be there all the time. Um, so that was another space was a student center, a place that where you would think students would be, you know, really belonging or feels much belonging. Um, they didn't. Um, mm-hmm. That goes for academic classrooms, too. There was a lot of classrooms that they talk about that. They're just like, you know, I, I didn't feel comfortable here. Um, I didn't feel like I could speak Spanish. Um, one of the examples the students utilized um, was a Spanish classroom that they felt comfortable in because they were able to just speak their language, their native language. Mm. Um, but once they crossed that threshold, they didn't feel the same comfortableness um, mm. to be able to say, like, speak their own native language. And so that speaks a lot to the power of intersectionality of language and right and mm. and the ability to feel comfortable in your identity, but not just that of communicating <laughs> kind of in your identity. Right. Um, but, you know, that that was pretty much the, the negative spaces um, that, that the students avoided. But one of the spaces that they all agreed upon was the soccer fields. Mm. That, that was really comfortable. Um, as we both know, soccer is a very <laughs> um, popular uh, sport in our culture. And um, the, these particular students were like, we love to go just to go play soccer. Um, but not only that, but we love to go to like the actual NCAA matches because mm. most of the students that are playing have Spanish last names. Um, and I can relate to them or their, their mom, their dads, their tias, they're in the stands yelling Spanish chants or Spanish, you know, <laughs> to their, to their mija or mijo, you know, like, you know, cheering them on. And it just feels like a sense of home, you know, where they can truly kind of relax, be around people who look like them and love the same sport. That was something that they all mentioned was soccer was something that at that institution in particular they could all rally behind and go to these games together and feel like they truly belonged. 
Absolutely. That is, I don't think I've ever heard that before to say that that was an embodiment of serviness, but I think it gets to the fact that servingness is super complicated. Mm-hmm. Like people want a like checklist almost. I like <laughs> just give us a checklist, right? And we'll check it off and we'll do the 10 things. Mm-hmm. And 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 there's just it's just not that easy. It's just mm-hmm. not that simple. Um, so yeah, I think that's the first. I don't think I've heard that one yet, but I, I hope we'll see, you know, publications coming out from your dissertation <laughs> soon, writing about yes. those kind of things. Um, but this is also a form of, of knowledge sharing, right? That's the point yes. of this podcast, is that is that like we shouldn't have to read research articles to to get knowledge, right? This is a, as a form of knowledge sharing. So so thank you for sharing um, you know, some of the findings from your your dissertation. Yeah, of course. Do you think if you did the dissertation at your new institution that it would be different? Because it's not predominantly white, isn't it? Predominantly Hispanic, Latine um, right. at your at your new institution, right? You think there'd yes. be different differences? Yeah, I think there would definitely be differences. However, I do think that there are still, at least what I'm finding here, is that there are still institutions that are designated HSIs, but not necessarily act like they are HSIs. Mm. Um, and that's okay. I I think that it's important to say that, you know, you may be designated an HSI at a certain period of time in your history and you, that may have just been a a very monetary decision to kind of get more funding for the institution, but it's important to recognize that when you do see that servingness may or may not be happening, that's the moment to start taking action, right? That's Mm. the moment where you can start doing the research, doing the work to actually course correct some of these things. So I think at my institution in particular, if I were to do the, the study here, there would be, you know, maybe not as much, um, I would say like artwork type spaces, you know, like does it, we don't have very much Spanish artwork, but we do have a lot of representation. There's a lot mm. of Hispanic staff, Hispanic Latina staff here. Um, there is a lot of student organizations that are very active here. Um, and there's, there's just an overall commitment being in South Texas to the Hispanic Latina culture. And so they can go to any restaurant around town and see people who look like them, um, as opposed to maybe in a Lubbock or San Angelo, which are my two other institutions, um, which are predominantly white cities and Mm. you know so it may be more of a external influence you know um here where it's it's more generally accepted as a culture in the city um as opposed to campus Uh, i think a, a lot of what has happened here is that um because we are diverse in the way that we are 75% Hispanic, that servingness was just happening. Like it was just Mm. automatically inherent. It had to have been happening already, um, which is not true, right? Like Mm -hmm. the DEI work in general (laughs) doesn't just happen. There is a lot of anti-Blackness and, you know, homophobia that happens within the Hispanic Latina culture that needs to be called out. And just because we're diverse doesn't necessarily mean that we're equitable or inclusive. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of what we probably would see if we utilize the same study on my campus. Absolutely. Well, I'm not putting any pressure on you, but <laughs> it seems like a good comparative study. <laughs> 
HSIs Absolutely. in Texas. I mean, you have been at three different HSIs in the same state that are arguably very, very different. Yes. Um, you know, even just me not even experiencing them, you've experienced them. Um, but that's the powerful thing about HSIs and serving this is it is very specific to the region, to mm-hmm. the part of the state, to the actual state you're in. Yes. Um, all of that matters, right? When it when it comes um, to serving us. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to detour us really quickly because you you have been using the term Latine with the mm-hmm. E instead of the X. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe our some of our listeners are not familiar with that term yet. Can you talk to us a little bit about why you chose to go with the E instead of the X? Sure. Yeah. So this is actually something that I learned from other scholars, um, the, the reasoning behind choosing the difference. Um, so for those that are listening, Latin X is a gender gender neutral, non-conforming term to describe the Latino, Latin, Latina um, population. Um, and it was used because there it, that the, the Spanish language is very gendered. Um, and so Latinx I use for a, a, a while, you know, and, and in a lot of my writing too as well. It wasn't until recently, um, I actually went to the ASH conference um, in Puerto Rico. And it was amazing, first of all, great <laughs> conference. Um, but I learned from other scholars, you know, the the use and intentionality but behind Latinx. Um, this was a term that was created by the LGBTQIA community for the LGBTQIA community. And I feel like we just co-opted it mm-hmm. and immediately started to use it as an umbrella term for everyone and everything that needs to be um, inclusive. And I use quotation marks because um, everybody, not everybody, people are utilizing Latinx in just like a generalized way to just seem savvy and inclusive when they may not know the history of the term. And so I I try to utilize Latine um, because it's, it's, it's the same thing, utilizing a non-gendered term for Latino or Latine or Latina, um, but without co-opting a term that was specifically created by a particular population. So not not owning and almost um, colonizing in a way a term that that was created by this population for this population. Um, and so that's the reason why I utilize Latine more. And it is also an easier way um, in the language to say, like when I'm, when you're speaking Spanish it, it kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit easier than saying Latin X um, in the Spanish language. So that's why I, I, t- I personally use Latin. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, Cause I, I've, I've grappled with whether or not I should move to the E even in my, my new book that will come out in January. Um, yay. yay. Um, I thought about using it and then I was like, I don't think my publisher's ready. Right. Because uh, now that's another level of, of, of educating, but we shouldn't have to keep educating folks. Like we going to use the terms we're going to use. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the E is more conducive to the Spanish language than the X. <laughs> Although yes. I do like the term abuelex. That's one oh, of my yeah. favorites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some some words are fun. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but um, but you know, and and I also always just defer to like people have to use what they feel comfortable with, you know. Yes. Um, so if that's what you feel comfortable with and 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 people are accepting it in your space, I'm glad, right? That that mm-hmm. you're you're pushing that that narrative that like we have to we have to think about what terms we're using and be inclusive mm-hmm. um without co-opting. What a powerful yes. thing to think about, right? We're co-opting terms all the time. Yes. So thank you. Thank you for that divergence from serving this <laughs> to terms, because people always ask about terms. Um, yeah. So it's like it's important for us to, to have this conversation. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about practice because you have, like I said, been at um, three different institutions in Texas with very different populations, um, emerging HSIs, predominantly white HSIs, pretty strong HSIs into like we're almost all completely Latine HSI, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about the the various ways you, you've seen serving this inactive without it being empirical, without you having collected any data, but like even in your own experiences as a student, as a practitioner, now in your current role, um, what are some of the ways you're seeing serviness enacted? Sure. So I'm going to go back to actually my undergrad experience um, at Angelo State. One of the saving graces, there was two things that saved me from quitting college, honestly. And I and I categorize it in servingness for this reason. Um, I, I was a part of first generation Rams, which our mascot is a Ram. Um, and basically what it is uh, was it, it gave you a family of other first generation students, but there was also a host family program um, in which you were assigned to or you were matched with um, somebody that was a, a faculty staff or administrator on campus that was your family while you were at Angelo State. And you got a host parent and you were the host child um, and they were just a resource. There was somebody typically, and I got assigned to a Latino. Luckily, I was able to relate culturally with them. And so they were able to say, hey, don't go to this restaurant, go to this restaurant because it's better, you know, or, or hey, you know, I, I'm a staff member on this campus. Go to this person for this resource. Um, hey, you know, have you thought about, you know, paying your bill? Are you on a payment plan? I saw the drop date is coming up. Are you doing okay? You know, how can I help you? That was a saving grace because that gave me Um, that family aspect that I was missing from my family, um, that they, you know, even though I'm very close to my family members and, and they would do anything, they were still three and a half hours away. And so I needed somebody there and then, and I really didn't have very many friends that came from high school with me to college. Um, and so that program really did help me. The second part is student organizations. And I cannot understate how important student organizations are in in the role of servingness, especially Latina, Hispanic focused. Um, Mine was the Association of Mexican-American Students, AMAS for short. And um, in AMAS, I'll be honest, my Latina identity didn't, wasn't formed until I got to college. I was, you know, very kind of kept away from my culture growing up. Um, from various different reasons, a lot of just to avoid avoid outward racism in my community, um, like the whole, you know, don't go outside too long, you're going to get too dark type thing, you know, they're going to make fun of you. I experienced that my whole life. And so when I got to college, and I joined this organization, they truly taught me, you know, who I was and what my culture was. I had no idea who Cesar Chavez was until I was 18. You know, I had no idea. And this is something that like historical, right? And so I started learning more, Dolores Huerta. And, you know, we started celebrating those those people and I learned so much. And because of that, that's where I truly do mean that I, I give credit to not only my mentors and like the first gen Rams and all that program. Amas is what saved me um, in, in keeping with um, my degrees. And, and of course, my mentors along the way as well. Um, but those two things are great examples of servingness that still continue today. When I went to Texas Tech University for my terminal degree, I joined their Hispanic organization, even though I was, you know, 28 years old and they're all, you know, 18, 19, 20. 
Like I joined and they welcomed me with open arms and it was just a way to just relax and just be yourself and do fun things like inner murals, play sand volleyball, you know, or, or go dancing at salsa night with everybody. And it was just fun. Um, so those are kind of some examples. And I, I can't understate the importance of celebrating our culture. Texas Tech has an amazing Hispanic Heritage Month program that really exemplifies what all institutions, I believe, should be doing. Um, they have a great El Grito um, that kind of kicks it all off. They celebrate HSI Week. Um, and this is all just kind of new type stuff um, that they're changing as they've gotten their HSI identity and their designation. They're really kind of taking that seriously. And the work that they're doing is important. They have an HSI committee. And so like all of these different things uh, all add up to great servingness examples. And ultimately what I'm doing is I'm taking all of those great practices and even stuff that I'm, I've learned from my dissertation and my scholarship and applying them here as we as we start the work. Like I said, I'm the inaugural director. So we're starting to figure out, you know, do we want to pursue the seal of excellencia? How do we do that? Why are we doing that? What's the intention behind that? Um, are we honoring our Hispanic Latina organizations on campus? Are we giving them enough resources? Are they doing all of the legwork when it comes to programming? Or should we be owning that so they can relax <laughs> and enjoy it and really kind of just be students? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, the holistic kind of my experience with serving this and some examples that institutions are doing. And Angelo State is a predominantly white um, almost predominantly Hispanic now, um, HSI. Um, Texas Tech just became an HSI, I think, in 2019. And then, of course, here at um, AM Kingsville, uh, we've been an HSI since the designation was born. Um, you know, we had Hispanic students in our very first graduating class um, and attendees because it's just South Texas is just predominantly Hispanic. Um, so, very different cultural, historical differences. Um, but we're all doing great things um, that that kind of fall in that servingness category. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those things. Um, and some of those things, you know, I think about HSIs as like already doing the servingness without thinking it was serving us. Mm -hmm. um, and you said something so important. That a lot of times that comes from students, mm -hmm. right? That students are the one. But then I love that you added, but are we supporting them? Are we giving them funding? Are we making sure they're well and mm -hmm. not putting retention and belongingness on students? Yes. Like you can't put that on students. They're trying to figure it out. Right. And, 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 and get good grades and deal with their own mental health and, and families away and whatever. Um, but, but there are such powerful sources, right? Those student organizations. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of the things I, I can't remember what Netflix show it was, but it, it was so profound. It stuck with me to this day, but it was, it said something to the fact of like resiliency is just saying that they are, you are surviving. Like, mm. like we, we talk about resiliency as this metric of, oh my gosh, we're, you know, we've gotten this amount of students to retain and persist, but ultimately what you're saying is these students are surviving. They're resilient enough to get a degree, to get to this, this, end this end goal. Um, but we need to really kind of frame it in that way of, you know, not every student is going to just be able to persist on the same level with the same resources, et cetera each individual kind of needs to be served in their own way. And we got to start looking at it that way. Absolutely. 
Yeah. And the intersectionality is an important piece of that, mm-hmm. right? Because how you're serving, you know, different genders, different, mm-hmm. even first gen, the, the, the um, organization you talked about, right? That was for first gen students. That's an intersection, right? That yeah. some of our students are first gen and that is an important piece, but not all of our students are, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, maybe a good amount, but um, it, it can't be reduced to one thing. That yes. servingness is super complicated. We have different races, different genders, different generations to college, all these different different um, aspects have to come in. So yeah, thinking about students' individual needs um, still has to be a part of serving us. Yeah. So what are your plans? You've kind of sprinkled in uh, a little bit of this, but what are your plans for enacting serviness in your new role as the inaugural director for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Texas A&M University, Kingsville? Sure. So... I think the very first thing, um, we, we have a wonderful new president, um, Dr. Robert Vela. He just came from San Antonio College um, and he's, a, he's an alum and he is actually very involved with the seal of excellencia or um, excellencia in education. And so our my very first thing is to lead the charge in getting the seal. Um, but I want to be careful about being intentional about what we're doing, right? So like, I, I'm always afraid of institutions pursuing the seal just to pursue the seal. Right. And and not kind of having those accountability measures in place so that when you get the seal, you're able to hold yourself accountable for those servingness metrics. Um, so we're building that. And I, I'm really excited about it because we're, we're building a committee that's going to have three different kind of um, prongs to it. Um, one that focuses on academic engagement. What are we doing inside the classroom? One that focuses on research grants, external funding, um, kind of the typical model of what an HSI would be looking for, and then um, student engagement or student um, uh, success. What are we doing um, to ensure that these students are um, succeeding in their lives, um, in their academic programs, but also on campus and re- retaining um you know, to persist to a degree. Um, so those three pronged um, approaches is how we're going to approach it as a committee structure um, and then kind of take it, take it up and, and lead the charge to the seal of excellencia. Um, but also, like I mentioned earlier, is um, amplifying the student voices. Uh, I Again, counter narratives are not just important in our research. It, it has to be in practice too. You know, I'm not afraid. I'm not shy of having difficult conversations. I would rather a student sit in my office and tell me that we are doing a terrible job than them being silent because I want to make sure that their experience is better than even mine whenever I was in college. I think that's ultimately why I joined higher education was to give students a better experience um, so that they do retain and they're able to help, you know, further our comunidad, you know, and, and so Anyway, that that's kind of what what the, the original plan is, is just kind of to implement a structure that has accountability, but also where every single facet of this campus is getting involved and, and has a responsibility in our serving this structure. Um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's not just, like I said earlier, it's not just a DEI division type thing. It has to come from every single aspect of campus. And so I'm trying to kind of implement each one of those things, um, bolster our, our cultural um, enhancing um, experiences. That's going to be big um, because we, we have, we have some things that are in the works before, but really kind of diving deeper into, you know, what does it mean to be um, a Latino that has mental health you know, um, issues or mental health needs. Um, I, I am very open about my mental health and going to counseling. And I think it's important that we implement some of those things into our education for Hispanic Heritage Month and beyond the month. 
Um, but again, it goes into even to those intersectionality things. What are we doing when it, when we talk about Pride Month? You know, are we honoring just in general Pride Month and um, without acknowledging the intersectionality of the different identities that we have on campus? Um, what does it mean to be Black and queer? You know, why are we not evaluating that experience and bolstering those voices? Um, so really kind of making sure that the student is involved at every single level is one of the main missions why, uh, or main missions of what I'm trying to do here at AM Kingsville. I love it. I'm so glad to hear that because I say a lot often <laughs> um, that HSI is administrator driven often. Yeah. Right. That it's coming from the upper levels and sort of coming down on us and we should do HSI. And it's so powerful that I've come in contact with institutions that are like when our president, we get a new president and they don't want to do HSI. Everything stops. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's that high level. So um, to think about it coming from students, um, maybe even student advisory boards, right? Like yeah. we, I mean, none of that has really been explored yet. Um, I mean, I always tell people, I don't know, do, you know, photo voice or PAR. I do, mm. I've done PAR projects yeah. with students, right? The participatory action research projects. Yeah. And just like you, they, I've found, they will tell you exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. They don't hold back. Yeah. They're like, well, it's nowhere on the website. Why is it on the website? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it took a student to tell you that you didn't have HSI anywhere on your website, like, yeah. <laughs> but they will. They're like, we don't have a social media account. We don't have a website, right? Like they'll tell you all those things, admissions and records. I heard this admissions and records is terrible. Fix them. Right. I mean, they'll yeah. tell you exactly what it is. And it's yep. like, we don't ask the students, right? We just start doing all the like, let's read Dr. Garcia's book and let's get the excellencia <laughs> seal. I mean, I want you to read my books. Yes, but <laughs> it's not everything, right? Like the students will tell you, they, they mm -hmm. didn't need to read the books to tell you what they need and what they want. Right. <laughs> right? Like exactly. uh, they're going to just tell you because it's their everyday experience. Um, right. So yeah. So, you know, of course, read the book, read the, get the excellencia seal. All mm. of those things are important, but, but just getting students engaged, um, I think is, is a great, um, way to, to go about it. So I'm glad to hear that, that you're, you're thinking along the way and it aligns obviously with your, your research and really your, your way of being, uh, you know, a higher ed practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. And just again, like servingness is nuanced, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's going to look different at state level, you know, region, you know, we are, although we are in South Texas, we're in that little sliver that is very conservative, right? So it's like, how, how does that play into the politics of being an HSI and really truly honoring the designation of what it, what the original intent was behind um, serving and honoring the Hispanic student? Um, and so, you know, again, it's going to look different. Each and every campus is going to look different. Um, but that's where you go to the students and you say, what are your needs? You know, how can we help you? Um what is what is preventing you from what is especially when you look at the data right i hope you have really good data at your institution when you look at it what is preventing a, a hispanic latina you know member of the lgbtqia community that is a first gen student from graduating from year 3 to 4 you know or from you know persisting from 3 to 4 graduating between 4 and 6 years um looking at that data and being able to say okay you know they are the reason why the qualitative reason why they're telling us is because, you know, financial aid is really hindering us or, or we don't have enough grants or I don't have access to a food pantry, not even talking about food insecurity, right? Um, I can't go to the library. I don't have Wi-Fi at home because I don't feel comfortable speaking Spanish in the library. Mm -hmm. You know, all those things all intersect and really can be barriers to these students. And we need to further understand the individual more as more than the holistic. 
Absolutely. It's funny you say a little sliver of conservative. I haven't jabbed at Texas yet, but like I thought all of Texas was was conservative. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. The politics. Right. I think yeah. as we watch as a country, we're like politically Texas. Everybody I meet in Texas, well, of course, I interact with a lot of higher ed folks, you know, are <laughs> yeah. right on board with me. They're like, yeah, we know. Yep, <laughs> we exactly. know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I'm going to ask you a question about that, um, about like operating right in, in a state like Texas, where the policies are kind of operating against mm-hmm. serving us. But yeah. first, I wanted to ask you about any thoughts on um, I know you're still new to the position, but what kind of anticipated challenges do you see um, just in general with doing DEI work? You said it's brand new at this institution, right? Your your new institution is like now just going in that path. What are some of the sort of anticipated challenges of of doing this work at a predominantly Hispanic Latina HSI? Sure. I think the the initial challenge that I'm having is um, kind of what I said earlier of everybody just expected that this work was happening. Um, And, but nobody knew whose job it was. And so now that there's a designated position, um, one of the challenges I'm finding is really just defining what this means. What does DEI and then ultimately belonging, um, you know, what does all that mean? And why are we doing it? Or why haven't we been doing it? Or I think I've been doing it, but I don't know. Like, can you explain this to me? And so that's kind of the questions that I'm, I'm having to answer. Um you know, being in, and, and this kind of can go into the next geopolitical, you know, part of it um, in a conservative type area. You know, when you talk about servingness a lot, especially HSIs, a, a lot of the initial response is, well, shouldn't we be serving everyone? You know, like, uh, why are we just talking about Hispanic students um, already kind of seeing that narrative? Um, not just at this institution, other institutions as well that I've been at, you know, Um the the initial knee jerk response that I've seen from administrators um, is, oh, you know, we're an HSI, but this benefits all students, and I think that that hinders, you know, I think that kind of hinders the message of like what the intent of serving this big bigger population as it's growing um, on your campus, you know, you're, you, that that shouldn't be a but, you know, it can be an and, but not a but. And, and that, I think that messaging piece is, is huge. So we need to kind of get away from that. Um, and, but that is one of the challenges that I'm seeing is we, we, we need to message the HSI, um, thing better, but not just message it also actually own the identity, um, and really kind of know what it truly means on our campus. And so a lot of the work that I'm going to be doing is having separate town halls, um, for staff, faculty, administrators, and students. And we're all going to ask the same question. What does it mean to be served here on this campus um, for the Latina students on our campus? Even the Hispanic faculty members, the Hispanic staff members, what does all that mean? And how can we help, you know, um, mitigate um, some of those hurdles or those challenges that you're having? Um, that's kind of some of the challenges that I'm running into. Um, even at other institutions, whenever I was there, um, the and again, the pushback is really just, well, you know, we, we need to be looking at all students. Um, it's very equivalent to the all lives matter type messaging, which is very unfortunate. Um, but it's the reality uh, of some of these institutions that are having to deal with this. Um, so that, that, that kind of wraps it up is that it, it really is just, you know, 
learning what being an HSI means, um, messaging that correctly, um, and kind of owning that identity. Absolutely. The all lives matter um, approach is not going to work. I say that all the time. Like mm -hmm. um, we have to really think through and at a place where you're, you know, you're, you're predominantly uh, Hispanic Latina, then it really is starting to get into the intersections, right? Like yes. which of our students need even more support? Yeah. If they have mental health needs, like how are we serve? Why, how is that becoming a part of serving us? Right. How mm -hmm. are our gender, you know, students with dif of different, you know, across the binary, how are we serving them? Um, women in a state where women's rights are being attacked, right? Like how are we making sure we are are serving them, right? Like all of those conversations have to happen because the all lives matter, like it, it's going to trickle down. It's not right. Yeah. Those, those groups are going to be harmed. We know it. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad, I'm glad they got you driving the bus or whatever, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever analogy it is <laughs> Yeah, driving the bus on this, because it, you, you know, you definitely have that, that perspective of like, yeah, no, this is, this is going to take work. Um, yeah. I imagine if I asked you in a year, what the challenges were, you're going to tell me a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably going to be challenging. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, mean we don't do it. Mm -hmm, go ahead. Well, I mean, I just in, inherently uh, with fighting against a system that has existed for decades and centuries, um, it's going to be hard. There is going to be a, a traditional pushback um, because we're going to be wanting to do things differently and really targeting specific groups on campus to help them get a degree, which just sometimes boggles my mind that that's even <laughs> a controversial thing. Um but I think, again, it, it just, I think part of it too, it goes back to my first point of education. I am an educator. I need to, and a lot of others on campus that understand this concept need to do better at educating those around us that may not understand, but if you just sit down and have an honest conversation with them, they may have a better understanding of, you know, why this is so important. As we see the climb of the Hispanic Latina population on this country, there's going to be a socioeconomic need for these students to get a degree. And so we need to be sure that they're persisting. Ultimately, that comes back on me and us as educators to, to help these, these other faculty staff members to really kind of get that buy-in of serving this. Absolutely. So let's get into the like geopolitical, historical sort of um, thoughts on doing servingness um, in Texas. One of the things I talk about um, in the new book that is coming out, I talk about external influences on servingness. Mm -hmm. And I talk about it, but I kind of just theorize because there's we haven't written extensively about this. Um, but I think a lot of us know it, right? Like just because yeah. it hasn't been written down doesn't mean you people haven't experienced it right in there and there are different places. So talk to me a little bit about that, about um, you know, serviness, um, what kind of local uh sort of policies and or historical sort of things that that might affect servingness um or that you've seen uh local, regional, and then state level, right? Yeah. Like how how are how can those sort of different concentric circles help or hinder serving this? Sure. I think uh, to start out, I'm going to start at my current institution and kind of work my way back out. I think locally here, because there is such a um, heavy Hispanic cultural exception, like they, they, they love the, the culture and they really truly accept it here. There's a support system that is, that is there to kind of catch us as we do this work. Um, it carries into the community. 
Um, we have a great financial and um, just in general support system from the King Ranch, which is kind of how Kingsville kind of got its name. Um, King Ranch is one of the biggest ranches in Texas. Um, we butt up right right against it. Um, and so there there are some influences there um, as well. And, you know, I think it, there there are ways that this is going to help help us continue the charge. Now, when you talk about, you know, Lubbock and where Texas Tech is, that is a very ruby red conservative area. Um, and there I know a lot of my colleagues that work at that institution get a lot of pushback on any sort of DEI type work. They're still doing it and they're doing an amazing job at it but they're getting a lot of pushback. So when they talk about servingness, they do get a lot of those questions about, well, why aren't we having, you know, servingness for white students or black students or, and and it's always an, an, an and, you know, like we, yes, we can do both things at the same time. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. This is just an all out effort, a designation to say that we're going to be intentionally looking at this population to help them out. Um, when you kind of zoom back out, to um, the surrounding support system of like counties, um, the institutions that surround each other really do partner well. Um, we have, I, we're only 30 minutes from Corpus Christi, uh, which is Texas A&M University, Corpus Christi. Um, they're a great partner in a lot of the work that we do, um, even um, Texas A&M University International, which is in Laredo, um, in all of South Texas, they, we really are a, a good coalition. Um, and even in Texas, we have the Texas um, HSI um, consortium um, and where we work together as HSIs to kind of figure things out. That is, again, a good bare bones scaffolding support for doing the servingness work. Again, zoom out even more when you go to the Texas in the, in the state, this is where you start getting into the, the politics of things. And um, where you see a lot of the anti, anti, anti racism movement of, you know, they're against CRT, they're against DEI work, um, and they've equated the two. Um, you know, when you have those issues that emboldens people around you that do believe in the, in those conservative values, um, that's not, that's okay to say that, you know, you can be a conservative and still do great servingness work. Um, it's just that when it's fed in a political way that DEI work is a negative thing and works against a certain population, that's what makes this work a lot harder. Um, so having to do the education of DEI doesn't necessarily equal CRT, but let me tell you a little bit more about what critical race theory is and, and why I believe you have a misconception of what it is. Um and so, I, again, it's a lot of that educating. I've had to do a lot of that work in my family to kind of talk about that. And ever since then, they've kind of understood, okay, now I now I get it, you know, and now I understand why you're doing the work that you're doing. I even had family members really concerned about me taking this job because of the current geopolitical um, um, things that are going on in the country as a whole, because there is a lot of people who just do not think that this work is needed and that it's, quote, anti-American. Um and so when you when you couple that, the anti-CRT movement, and even though I utilized critical race theory and Latino critical race theory to evaluate in my dissertation, and I kind of have that lens in general on in life, um, you couple that with uh, a state that really doesn't fund higher education institutions well, 
Um, unless you are a flagship institution um, and you have kind of the oil money um, behind you, we call it the PUF, the Permanent University Fund. If you don't have that behind you, um, institutions are struggling um, to, to get resources and to get funding. And, you know, as, as higher ed is not being funded, a lot of these institutions are seeking out designations and grants um, like the HSI grants. And whether they do it, you know, um, to actually, you know, serve students or actually the work with um, uh, Stephanie Aguilar-Smith, um, she does great at, at looking at Title V funding um, and, and knowing kind of, you know, what these institutions and why they're pursuing this designation to offset those budget shortfalls, right? And and that kind of speaks to, you know, what, what are our intentions behind um, pursuing the designation? So again, those two things together make it really difficult um, to do this work sometimes. Um, again, every institution is different. They're all influenced kind of differently by their board of regents, by their presidents, by their alumni, um, their alumni in the state legislatures. That's a big thing here. Um, if you are not kind of in the AM, um, which we're in the AM system or in the UT system, if you don't have like that kind of buy-in from those alumni that are in the state legislatures, that could affect your funding, um, or it could make it a little bit harder to open up or do a resource center or whatever your institution is trying to do. Um, so all of those things combined really do, you know, affect the way that we serve. And, and ultimately too, it could be just a messaging thing. Some institutions, uh, we have a study coming out, me and um, my, my colleague, Dr. John McNaughton, that, that kind of evaluates the way that HSI community college leaders are communicating. Um, and one of the things that this, this president said, it's kind of a little a taste of what it's what's coming um is that uh you know i i don't go into the state legislature um in my state and i say we are a hispanic serving institution we need funding for hispanic students he's like i can't message that and so what i say instead is i need money for first generation students and inherently that includes minoritized populations and so i can get the funding that i need without having to say that we're an HSI um, and that we're getting funding, that we need funding specifically for Hispanic students. But it's crazy that they have to do that. They have to make that paradigm messaging type shift in order to get what they need for these their students. Um, so yeah, that, that ultimately kind of gives you a little bit of a background of what it's like in Texas and then ultimately actually in, in other states as well. That was a very complex and a answer that I, I needed. I, I'm like, cause I, I asked it a lot, right? I'm like, I don't, how, this is complicated, right? And like I said, yeah. there's not a lot of research, um, but yeah, I mean, you're getting into all these layers, right? And mm -hmm. alumni, right? We haven't talked enough about the fact that alumni could shut serving this down yes. immediately. And then they're the local, uh, you know, leaders and they're the mm -hmm. state legislature and all these like layers of complication that that can ultimately affect servingness. Absolutely. So it's so much more than just just the enrollment. So yeah, that was whew, that was a lot for me to think about. <laughs> I'm going to think about it for a little bit longer, like, hmm. Publication. I know, right? I have all kinds of publication ideas. We're going to have to talk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Offline. Yeah. But um, to go with that, um, you know, you're definitely a scholar practitioner, right? Like that you're, you're, you're drawing from scholarship to inform your practice. Who are the HSI scholars? You've mentioned Stephanie Aguilar-Smith. Um, who are the HSI scholars? And maybe they're not HSI scholars, just scholars in general that you're accessing to do this work. 
Sure. Well, you know, one Stephanie, Stephanie Aguilar Smith, you know, she really, we became friends over Ash and, you know, I really kind of delved into her work. Um, but, you know, as I was, you know, researching as a young research assistant going into my dissertation or going into my doctoral work, you know, your work came up, um, Anne-Marie Nunez, who I met actually at the HSI um, consortium, Texas HSI consortium this past month. Um, her work, I kind of leaned on, um, you know, uh, Kristen Venegas, um, Francis Contreras. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of like my literature review right now of <laughs> all the different things. Uh, <laughs> Alphabetical, alphabetically right, going exactly. down the list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, those, those, that kind of, you know, Maricela uh, Cuellar, you know, uh, Vanessa Sanson, you know, you know, all, all these scholars really kind of as in have driven my my type of work and what what I wanted to study. Um, so I really kind of lean on them. I always look for those names, you know, as as publications are coming out to 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 stay informed. And, and that's also another piece of this. Right. Is that I, I think um, practice and scholarship sometimes don't talk to each other um, or they really don't talk to each other, depending on, you know, what what institution you're at. Um, but that's what I really try to aim to do is to to really do the scholarship that translates well with practitioners, because um, otherwise, you know, why are we doing what we're doing? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, you just named all like my like scholar crew. That's like my <laughs> that's like my crew. Anne-Marie, yeah. Vanessa, Marcella, mm-hmm. Stephanie, uh, all um, also shout out to the Latinas doing this work. You know, yes. like we got to we got to name that, you know, Absolutely. Um, not that there aren't other people doing this work, but th- <laughs> there, you know, there there's some good scholarship coming out um, and just great scholars doing great work that that I, I, I asked that question because I want listeners to you know to be informed by like oh you know what who are the people talking about these things I'm talking about right you mentioned Kristen Venegas I imagine you looked into her work for like financial aid stuff right like she's done some great work around that um so you know who who are the scholars that we lean into to to do this work because we got it we got to learn from somewhere um because, you know, there's only our, our, our own ideas can only go so far. They can go pretty far. Our exactly. students, they can teach us. But there, there's also, you know, a lot of us that are, are really trying to figure this out, too, yeah. um, and writing about it regularly. So so thank you for for sharing those. All my my heroes also. <laughs> sheroes. <laughs> Absolutely. So the final question, and this one seems to stump everyone. I don't know why. It's just a hard <laughs> question. Like people show up because they want to know, que pasa HSIs? Like what's up? What's happening? Right? So how would you answer that if someone says, que pasa HSIs? <laughs> you know, I I was thinking about this earlier and I, I you know, it, it is kind of stumping to me. But, you know, what I really think is if somebody were to ask me that, like, what's going on with, with what HSIs are doing, you know, what's going on with, with this research, this scholarship and this practice. And I think the best way that I can describe it is that it's evolving. Um, It's an, it's an evolving area that um, still needs a lot of work um, in helping us define, you know, what this truly means. Um, And like we said earlier, it's complicated. Um, you know, but what we're doing, and as you know, I know the HSI number did dr- did drip a little bit as far as designation goes, but we're still growing. Like there's still over, I think over 300 emerging HSIs in the queue that are going to jump into this space very soon. Um, which not even getting to, into the funding side of things that is going to make it more competitive. Um, 
you know, we we need to um, be looking for that answer um, to help these institutions. And so I think really what's up with this, you know, I, I really think it's it's an evolving issue um, that we are really working hard to to solve um, so that these institutions can do the best that they can do however they can, you know, whether you're a community college, four-year, private, you know, in Texas, in Arizona, wherever, um, you know, you have somewhat of a playbook to try to a- a- apply to your institution. Um, so yeah, that, I think that's that's how I would answer that question. I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for, but yeah. Absolutely. There's no answer to that, right? There's yeah. so much going on, which is why, uh, you know, this, the podcast is, is coming on board um, and, and other things I'm thinking about of like, how do we how do we keep learning and growing? We have so much learning and growing to do um, with HSI. So with that, thank you for being a guest on, um, on Que Pasa HSI's and for sharing all your knowledge with us today. Yeah, absolutely. And again, thank you so much. I really appreciated this talk. It actually is very inspiring to just to get to talk about it and talk about the research that's being done. And so to all the listeners that are listening and all the scholars that are wanting to get into this space, I highly recommend it. You're you're, you're joining greatness. So I really, really appreciate the opportunity to join you. Awesome. Thank you.